The stars are eternal. Chapter 4 The Farewell Fire is a terribly tricky thing. One minute, you can be sitting in front of the telly without a care in the world, everything is just fine, no complaints, and then the next, someone will be sniffing the air and asking, do you smell something burning? And you'll all realize that the kitchen is on fire because someone left a pan on the stove. This is exactly what happened to Arthur and Alfred, except that in this case, the pan was a mob of angry colonists, and they were not watching the telly because it wouldn't be invented for 350 years yet. Arthur had a knapsack on the bed and was currently shoving a seemingly random assortment of clothing into it. They had decided to use the cover of night to make their escape from the town, and he could only hope that they could leave quickly enough before the colonists did something rash. He was trying to pack as quickly as he could, but he still couldn't seem to find his coat. Nights, even summer ones, were deadly cold here in America. Ah, yes, he remembered now. He draped it over his chair in the front room. Alfred, he instructed the boy, who was standing next to him, looking worried. Go get my coat from the front room, will you? Arthur was trying his best to appear calm, but Alfred knew that something was seriously wrong. He nodded, though, and pattered from the room to find the garment. Arthur continued his furious packing. Shirts, shoes, what did they really need? So focused was he on the task of getting them out of this very bad situation as quickly as he could that he almost didn't hear Alfred's call from the next room. "'Arthur?' he said nervously. "'What is it?' shouted Arthur, a little too sharply. You couldn't possibly blame him, though, especially not at a time like this. "'Come here,' said Alfred. Sighing, Arthur abandoned the knapsack and strode into the front room. "'Count this weight,' he began, "'I'm very bit.' He stopped as he caught that distinctive smoky smell that stung his nose. Something was burning. And then he saw Alfred. The boy was simply pointing, at a loss for words, at the kitchen door. Arthur turned, and very swiftly realized that it was enveloped in flames. Oh no, he mumbled. They were too late. The colonists had done something rash. They were going to burn them alive. There was a series of shouts from behind the front door, and running to the window, Arthur caught a glimpse of a practical horde of colonists with torches and pitchforks. They screamed for blood as they lit the front door on fire. "'Come on!' he yelled, grabbing Alfred's hand and pulling him back towards the bedroom, which was the only room in the house currently not on fire. But Alfred resisted. What was wrong with him? Arthur pulled on his arm again, but the boy didn't budge. It was that damned unnatural strength of his. Wait! He screamed over the roar of the flames. My feather! It's in the kitchen! We'll have to leave it behind! Arthur yelled, pulling futilely one more time. Alfred's eyes widened and began to fill with tears, although whether that was from pure feelings of remorse or that thick black smoke that was slowly enveloping the room in its deadly embrace was anyone's guess. No! He said, beginning to bawl. It was my sister's! Oh, for Christ's sake, they were going to be burned alive at this rate. Arthur had learned from experience that being covered in flames from head to toe while screaming in pain was not fun. At all. They wouldn't die from it, of course, but the pain would be so bad that they'd probably wish they were. You just have to go and get the damn thing. Go into the bedroom, he instructed, coughing. <coughs> I'll get it. Alfred smiled and ran through the door to the bedroom. Arthur tore off a bit of his sleeve and placed it over his mouth, making a makeshift smoke screen. This was going to hurt. A lot. But it was better than sitting there and doing nothing. He took a deep breath, steeled himself. Better do this quickly. Kicking in the wooden door, Arthur realized that the kitchen was a mess of flames and destruction. The far wall had a large hole in it from where the hungry flames had eaten it, and the smoke was unbearable. Arthur started coughing despite the smoke screen, which was never going to be that effective with this much smoke anyway, but he had to find the feather. He ran into the room, hopping from foot to foot to avoid the fire as best as he could. 
The feather was nowhere to be seen. Not on the counter, not on the mantle over the hearth, not anywhere. Arthur had started wheezing now. He wasn't going to last much longer, and his feet were burning in their leather boots. He tried to stamp out the flames, but the fire was absolutely everywhere now. Then, as if by magic, a breeze flowed through the ever-increasing hole in the far wall. It was brief and small, certainly not enough to put out the fire, but enough so that the feather, wherever it had been hiding, was able to catch on to the wind and blow high up into the air over Arthur's head, unharmed. He began laughing, giddy, as he reached up to catch it. Prize in hand, he ran from the kitchen to find that the fire had spread to the whole of the front room and had begun to move into the bedroom. Alfred was in there! He heard it then, over the roar and whoosh of the flames. Alfred was screaming. Arthur began to run across the burning room, only to be stopped when he heard a large cracking sound over his head, and one of the roof's big support beams came crashing down right in front of him. It was now little more than a burning mass of fire and pain. "'I'm coming, Alfred!' he shouted, dancing from foot to foot as he tried to find a way around this new obstacle. But there were none. The beams stretched all the way across the room from wall to wall, every inch burning as ashes blew off at the top. Arthur was just going to have to go over it. Sticking the feather in his shirt pocket and out of harm's way, Arthur braced himself, then ran at the beam. It was large, and he had to place his bare hands in the burning log in order to vault himself over. There was an audible sizzling noise and an overwhelming smell of cooking flesh as he did so. But then he was over and hurtled headfirst into the bedroom, and there was Alfred, covering his face in the corner of the room as the flames looked hungrily at him. The knapsack, still on the bed, was relatively unharmed, just a bit singed. Arthur quickly grabbed it, letting out a gasp of pain as his burnt hands touched the straps, and ran over to Alfred, bodily picking him up and flinging him over his other shoulder like a sack of potatoes. The boy didn't resist, just coughed and whispered hoarsely, "'Did you get it? The feather? <coughs> yeah, I got it,' said Arthur." He turned back to the front of the house, only to see that their only exit was blocked by an encroaching wall of flames. They were trapped. The heat of the fire and smoke burned his lungs as Arthur breathed it in, and the whole house glowed a sickly orange. He had to get them out of here. He couldn't watch the small child go through something as traumatic as being burned alive. Arthur turned around in a circle, trying to find a viable exit, when his eyes came to rest in the big bay window overlooking the bedroom. Broken glass embedded in his skin did not sound like a good time to Arthur, but it was better than being consumed by fire, wasn't it? This might <coughs> sting a little, he shouted in between coughing fits. There was no response from the lump on his shoulder. Arthur backed up as far as he could, and bracing himself, ran headfirst to the window. It is often at this point in a story when the hero, or heroine, depending, will close his eyes and take a running leap of faith through the plate-glass window in slow motion, signifying that the hero can no longer be controlled by the people that are inevitably oppressing him. But if a person were really to attempt something like that, they would most likely miss the window entirely and crash face-first into the wall. So Arthur did not close his eyes, and confidentially, he wasn't the hero of this story anyway. He didn't remember much after that. It all kind of melded into a blur of pain and confusion. He supposed later that he must have been able to get up and stagger a few paces into the forest before collapsing into a bleeding mess in the forest floor, or else the colonists would have found them. The next thing he remembered, the sun was bleeding through his closed eyelids, and something was poking him. More specifically, something was poking his face. Arthur? When he didn't move, the thing began to shake him vigorously. Arthur! Come on, dude! Wake up! Arthur coughed a bit, clearing his lungs of the stale smoke that still sat in them, and groaned. Coughing hurt. There was a gasp near his ear, and the shaking increased. Brother! Ow! 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 Every moment sent stabs of pain up his body. Stop! He mumbled, and the shaking abruptly ceased. 
Arthur opened his eyes a crack, then closed them again as the harsh morning sun burned them. Alfred sat over him, primed and ready to start poking him again. He looked very worried. I'm okay. <coughs> Arthur croaked, hacking up a lung. Thank God, Alfred exclaimed. I was just about to have to give you the kiss of life. Arthur tried to sit up, wheezing as he laughed, but fell back down again. He started to run a hand through his soot-covered hair, but then sucked in a breath and promptly stopped as the blistering skin on his palm made contact. Once again, Arthur sat up and actually managed it this time. And he was, of course, promptly glomped by Alfred, who almost was able to knock him right back down again. I was so scared, he said. I thought you weren't coming back. I said I'd come back, didn't I? asked Arthur. A gentleman always keeps his word. Alfred released him from the bone-crushing hug and sat back on his haunches. His face was covered in blotches, but other than that, the boy seemed relatively unharmed. Oh, Arthur remembered, reaching into his shirt pocket. Your feather. Alfred smiled, delighted, and took it carefully, shaking the soot off with reverence. It was a miracle that it remained untouched by the fire. Thanks. They've got to be close by. The two froze where they sat as several voices echoed through the trees. It was the colonists. They knew that they were not dead. Alfred's eyes grew wide. Shh. Arthur whispered, and motioned for Alfred to follow him in the opposite direction of the colonists. He could only hope that Boston was in this direction. For three days they skulked through the wilderness, not saying a word and jumping at small noises. They were dirty and exhausted, but still very much alive. The colonists continued to hunt them for the better part of the first day, but very quickly gave up. Either that or they'd actually left them far behind. Alfred was visibly shaken. His eyes remained in a perpetual state of surprise, and the practical waterfall of words that were known for spilling out of his mouth of their own accord were oddly absent. The silence was unnerving for Arthur, who was by now so used to the constant chatter going on in the background that having it suddenly gone was unbalancing. He half expected the dialogue to recommence at any minute, and when it didn't, he grew worried. "'Are you all right?' he asked, as they worked their way over the uneven forest floor. Alfred nodded, but then jumped a foot in the air when he landed on a stick, which made a loud crack as it folded under his weight. The boy was most certainly not all right, but Alfred let it slide. They stumbled along for a few hours and were eventually able to head east when they came upon a clearing in the middle of the dense vegetation and saw the sky overhead. Soon their burns began to heal, and by the end of the day the blisters on Alfred's face had become nothing more than a sheen of pink on his cheeks. Arthur's hands are better as well, which made it less of a complete hell to try to carry the knapsack along, but they had been burned far worse than Alfred's cheeks and began to peel so that by nightfall the knapsack strap was covered in dry, flaked-off skin. It got dark quickly, even more so under the cover of the trees. They walked for as long as they could, but Arthur's knees soon felt like they were about to give out underneath him, and Alfred's eyes had lost their usual shimmer. So they set up camp. Alfred, with his knowledge of the land, was able to scrounge up a few edible nuts and berries to eat while Arthur set about lighting a fire. They would need the heat to last the cold night, because much to his dismay, in his hurry, Arthur had forgotten to pack blankets. So they spent the night shivering and listening to the howls of distant wolves. At some point in the night, Alfred managed to fall into an uneasy sleep, snuggled next to Arthur, but Arthur himself slept very little. He was troubled by the rashness of the colonists. They were fighters, that much was certain, and passionate about what they believed in. After witnessing the fervor of America's people, Arthur wasn't exactly sure that these were good qualities for them to possess. The second day was uneventful, mostly just a lot of walking through the humid woods. They did find a stream at some point, almost choking in their effort to rehydrate after almost 24 hours without that essential substance, but mostly they just walked on in silence. On the third morning, however, they stumbled upon a road. 
This made walking quite a bit easier, and at this point Arthur was sure that that was all he'd be doing for the rest of his miserably long life. A horse-pulled cart rumbled past them, filled with a heavy load of wheat, and the driver was able to point them in the right direction towards Boston. He was helpful, but eyed their burnt clothes and wary expressions suspiciously. He moved on quickly and left them to go on their way. Finally, they began to see small farms and other signs of civilization that could only mean that they were closing in on the city. They saw people, too. Men, women, old ladies, babies, so many people, probably more than Alfred had ever seen in one place. He watched them all pass and seemed to have a strange look of pride plastered on his face. But the people seemed to keep their distance from the two of them. Arthur couldn't blame them, though. The two of them did look like they'd just come through a war zone. Nonetheless, Arthur didn't notice because he was too busy thinking about how nice a bath would be right now. Boston was big. Not London big, of course. London claimed almost half a million people in its citizenry, but for the New World, Boston was positively massive. As they walked into the city proper, Arthur watched as Alfred's eyes grew to the size of saucers. He seemed to momentarily break out of his shell shock as he let out an odd little whoa and turned his head this way and that, rather like an owl as he tried to look at the whole city all at once. He had never been in a city this huge before. They walked along the side of the cobblestone street, watching the carts and horse-drawn carriages rumble down the road. People were everywhere, building things, haggling over goods. It seemed as if everyone was in some kind of hurry. Arthur took Alfred's hand for fear that the child would run off and he'd lose them in the cacophony. And soon the hustle and bustle and controlled chaos of the whole city broke the boy's silence. He began to talk again, talking a mile a minute. "'What's that? What are they doing? Who's that guy? He looks important!' And Arthur tried to answer as many questions as best he could while simultaneously attempting to find them a place to stay for the night, an inn or the like, one that was preferably not shady. It took a while, because Arthur was wholly unfamiliar with the city, and he was bloody exhausted. But just as it was beginning to get dark and Alfred started to shiver, they came across a cheerily lit inn with a plaque hanging over the door with the words, The Eagle and Crown, written in red letters. It swung in its hinges in the slight breeze. They entered through the squeaky wooden door, and were greeted by a pleasant, raucous peal of laughter from the bar towards the back of the room. Candles lit the small tavern with a cheery glow, and a fire roared in the corner. For the first time since their last night in Philadelphia, Arthur actually felt warm. The barmaid, who is wearing a rather flattering ensemble which Arthur didn't fail to appreciate, looked up from the bar as they entered. "'Can I help you, boys?' she asked, approaching them. A few mugs of ale were resting on a tray which she carried, and looked awfully tempting to Arthur. But, he thought with a sigh, he did have a duty to Alfred. If he had one, he was liable to have more, and he simply wouldn't allow the child to see him inebriated. Yes, said Arthur, you won't happen to have any rooms free for a few nights. The barmaid thought for a second. I've got a room, if you've got money. She eyed them appraisingly, saw their sit-stained clothes and dirty faces. Arthur dug around in his coat pocket. There were a few loose coins jangling around in there. He had more in the knapsack, but this was far more convenient. Will this do? he asked, placing them in her outstretched hand. She counted the coins, then nodded, handing her tray of mouth-watering beverages to another girl. Follow me. She led them up the rough wood stairs and down a narrow hall into a small but clean room. You can get some dinner downstairs, she said, turning to leave. Let me know if you need anything. She gave Arthur a significant look. Oh, if only Alfred wasn't here, but that would be highly inappropriate. I think we're okay, he said, and she shrugged, closing the door behind her. Arthur and Alfred briefly contemplated going down for dinner, but at that point the need for a good night's sleep overcame even the most awful hunger pains. So tired were they that they practically collapsed into bed. Arthur's bath would have to wait until the morning. Not able to keep his eyes open any longer, Arthur was just about to drift off to sleep when Alfred spoke. 
Arthur? He asked through the darkness of the small room. Yes, Arthur mumbled, half asleep. What if it happens again? What if they try to kill us? I I'm scared. Hey, Arthur said, opening his eyes with some difficulty. Don't worry. I'll make sure that no one ever hurts you again. I promise. Even though he couldn't see it, he could tell that Alfred was smiling. He snuggled up close to Arthur, who fell into a deep and peaceful sleep. A week passed. Arthur was finally able to get that bath he'd been so desperately craving. You do clean up nice, the barmaid commented, and after a few days they were able to acquire a more permanent residence. It was a small townhouse made of bricks in a quiet part of the city, with a bit of shrubbery out front and a little garden out back. Arthur had been a bit worried at first that Alfred might begin to chafe at the lack of wilderness around, but three years of semi-civilized life seemed to have miraculously bestowed the boy with more confidence in populated areas. He hadn't lost his energetic attitude in the least, however, and often insisted on going for long walks in the market or another equally noisy area, and just watching all of the different people that came to the city. He was beginning to see it as his, this city, and all of the people in it, Arthur could tell. It had happened to him once, so long ago. One day, he'd simply had an epiphany as he looked from a tower window out onto London that everything was his. It had filled him with such a strange sense of pride to see his people building and growing, becoming stronger with each passing year, and now it seemed the same feeling had dawned on Alfred. There was a little voice in the back of Arthur's mind as he saw the child laugh and jump sparkles in his eyes at the growth of the colonies that remained uneasy. "'They're not his,' the voice would say. "'They're yours. "'If you encourage this kind of behavior, "'then he may one day want to take them from you.' "'But Arthur pushed those evil thoughts out of his head. "'Sweet, innocent Alfred couldn't possibly do a thing like that, "'a thing so malicious. "'He was only a child, after all. "'It was on one of these many walks of theirs "'that everything changed, again. "'Alfred had been admiring one of the locally grown apples "'in a stall at the busy market, "'Arthur keeping an eye on him, "'when he felt a tap on his shoulder.' He turned, coming face to face with someone very familiar. He wore a navy uniform, a sailing master probably, and was very young, maybe only twenty. He had dark, freckled skin, not uncommon for sailors, who worked outside in the hot sun. "'Captain Kirkland?' he asked in disbelief. Now Arthur could place him, the distinctive Scottish accent gave him away. He was the Swabby from Old Bess, the one whom Arthur had made captain those three and a half years ago. "'Ethan!' he exclaimed, remembering the boy's name now. He shook his hand. "'It's been a long time, my old friend. How's life been treating you?' "'Splendidly,' he said, grinning sheepishly. "'I joined the Navy as soon as I was old enough, and I was recently appointed sailing master. "'That's wonderful. And it's all thanks to you,' he said. "'You taught me a lot in those two years. And what about you?' he added. "'I never thought I'd see my old captain in America, with a family nonetheless.' He nodded to Alfred, who had since purchased his apple and was loudly chomping through its shiny red surface as he listened to them talk. "'A family?' Arthur asked, momentarily confused. Uh, "'Oh!' he understood. Uh, "'He's not mine. He, he's like, uh, uh, my little brother,' he said, putting an arm around Alfred's shoulder. "'Poor boy didn't have anybody to look after him, so I sort of took him under my wing.' Alfred smiled up at him and took another huge bite out of his apple that was largely disproportionate to the actual size of his mouth. "'So, uh, how are things in England?' Arthur asked. "'Ruddy awful,' Ethan replied earnestly, shaking his head. "'King James is a bloody Catholic, after all.' Arthur's grip tightened on Alfred's shoulder, who didn't seem to notice. "'King James? What happened to Charles?' "'He died more than a year ago, mate!' Ethan laughed. "'Where have you been living? Under a rock?' "'Things have been... someone hectic around here lately.' They talked for a few more minutes before parting ways, but Arthur's mind hadn't been on the conversation. 
Charlie, his old friend, was dead, and he hadn't even been there to see him off. He'd forgotten that he was mortal, that he was going to die, and it kind of hurt, he had to admit. But more importantly than his feelings was the fact that another wholly unpleasant man now sat on the throne of England. He needed to go back, that much was certain. With Charlie dead, there was simply no one to tell the pneumonic about his existence, and the more he waited, the harder it would be to explain the situation. The bugger of it all would be that he couldn't take Alfred with him. He had no idea how long he'd be gone, and trying to keep Alfred calm and quiet while he dealt with inevitably long and tedious matters would not be good for anyone present. And as much as he hated to admit it, his credibility as a nation would go down in the eyes of the pneumonic if he was accompanied by a child. Alfred made a big fuss when he told him, "'No, you can't leave!' he begged. "'Not you, too!' He glomped Arthur as per usual, his tears straining his shirt. It broke his heart a little, but he didn't really have any choice. "'I'll only be gone a few months,' he said, trying not to tear up himself. "'And then things will go back to normal, all right?' "'But,' the boy began, "'but, but what if it happens again? What, what if I have to run and you can't find me?' "'You forget your nation, my boy,' Arthur said. "'I'll be able to find you wherever you go.' It was a lie. He didn't have a nation compass, remember. But it seemed to cheer the boy up, who sniffed up his tears, ran a hand under his nose. He nodded. "'Okay.' So Arthur had booked passage on a merchant ship bound for London and spent the last happy few days with Alfred, seeing the sights of Boston, smiling and laughing, but he couldn't help the sinking feeling that this would be the last time. And then the big day came, and after a brief farewell on the dock, the ship pulled out of the harbor, away from America and back to the motherland. Alfred stood on the edge of the dock for as long as he could, watching the ship and his brother leave him behind. He was alone again. It wasn't a good feeling. Arthur stood on the deck, breathed in the salty ocean air that he hadn't tasted for the longest time. He had a strange, twisted feeling in his gut as he thought of Alfred back on the dock, back in America. It was a guilty feeling. But Arthur shook himself. It had been a nice dream while it had lasted. But now it was time to get back to work.